Have you ever run a marathon race before? Some of you probably are not that adventurous to run a race. I was reading probably months ago about a woman by the name of Beth Ann DeSantis. She decided she wanted to compete in the Olympics. Well, in order to run a marathon in the Olympics, you have to enter a qualifying race. And so she decided to do that. She had to make it within two hours and 45 minutes. I forget how long the marathon was, probably 26 miles, but she had to make the qualifying time in order to be able to compete in the Olympics. And so she started off, she had a very auspicious beginning, and when she got about two minutes left in the race, she fell and she stumbled because of exhaustion. And of course, the crowd was cheering her on and she got back up on her feet and she began to walk towards the finish line. Well, right before she got there, she fell again. And if you'll notice the next slide, this isn't her, but she was crawling on her hands and on her knees, and she finally crossed the finish line, and she made it within three seconds, and she qualified. You know, that's analogous to the Christian life. The Bible says that you and I are in a race. We entered the race when we became a Christian, and so every Christian by default is running the Christian race. The length of your race is ultimately determined by God. But the Bible makes it very clear that once we enter the race, God wants us to give a maximum effort. He wants us to run with intentionality. He wants us to run with commitment. He wants us to run with purpose. In fact, Paul shows us this in 1 Corinthians. As you know, Paul dealt in Corinth with the Isthmian games, and one of the uh, events was running. And he says this using the athletic metaphor in chapter 9. He says to the Corinthians, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? He says, run in such a way as to get the prize. In other words, don't loaf. Be a committed runner. Run in such a way as to win. He says this in Acts chapter 20 as he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. He knows he's in for trouble. He's in for persecution. And I love this passage because Paul wasn't deterred by anything. He says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. If I was told that, I probably would think twice, probably would tuck my tail between my legs and say, that's not for me. That wasn't the Apostle Paul. He says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. It's not about me. I'm expendable. He says, my only aim is to finish the what? The race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You remember when Paul was knocked off his horse, God gave him his commission, and he said to one of the kings, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And we know from 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Paul said at the end of his life that he did finish the race and he finished well. And so we're all called to run with a maximum effort. We're all called to run well. But you know, a lot of Christians today in the American church have either dropped out of the race or they're really coasting or they're loafing. When I played high school football, that was one of the things that the coaches would write us all the time about is loafing. Give a maximum effort. And a lot of Christians in the American church today are either not running, they've dropped out of the race, or they're loafing or they're coasting. And I think there are three primary reasons why. Maybe you can identify with these reasons. Number one, uh, we get wounded in the Christian life. Sometimes we get hurt by other Christians. There are a lot of Christians that have been hurt by the church and institutional Christianity. And because of their woundedness, they don't allow God to heal their wounds. 
And as a result, they stay away and they're not running the race. And so maybe this morning you're struggling with woundedness. Secondly, sometimes it's weariness. People either stop running or they coast because they're weary. Sometimes they're serving God and they're doing too much, and what happens is they grow weary or the circumstances of life can beat us down. I think we've all been there before, and we get weary in our Christian experience or we're emotional people. We just go through Christian doldrums. We struggle. We're up and down. And so we grow weary, and as a result, we either walk off the track or we begin to coast in our Christian life. And then one other reason why is I think is waywardness. We all deal with the siren calls of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we feel the pull of the world. And especially in America, we're living in the greatest country that has ever existed on this planet in terms of material prosperity and opportunity. And the distractions are all over the place. And so it's easy for us to listen to the siren calls of the world, and we get wayward in our Christian experience. And so I think weariness, woundedness, and waywardness are reasons why Christians are not running the race in order to win the prize. And so how do we deal with that? Well, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we want to specifically look at verses 1 through 12 for this morning on how to run the race and how to run it well. John is going to be back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I believe, starting next week. So we're going to get back into our verse-by-verse going through a book. But for this morning, how to run the race and run it well. Because, again, all of us who knows Jesus Christ this morning as our personal Lord and Savior, we are in the race by default. And again, you're either running with a maximum effort or you're a Sunday Christian only. You're just kind of coasting in the Christian life. And God wants us to seek first the kingdom of God. Now, let me give you a little background of what's going on. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews was, and it really is irrelevant at this point, but the writer of Hebrews was writing to a small group of Jewish Christians, and basically, many of them had come out of Judaism, and they ostensibly embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they had a good beginning. They were willing to take their stand for God, and they suffered persecution. But because the heat was turned up, Many of them were tempted to go back to Judaism. Many of them were going to go back to the old sacrifices, the old priesthood, the old covenant. And what the writer of Hebrews does is he writes these Jewish Christians and he basically says, don't go back to the old covenant. We have a greater and better covenant. Don't go back to the old sacrifices. Jesus is the one and final sacrifice. He says, don't go back to the old priesthood. Jesus is our high priest. And so he's encouraging them because many of them stopped running the race or they were tempted to really coast and not take a stand for Jesus. In fact, we see this in Hebrews chapter 10 where he tries to encourage them. It's a great passage, verses 32 through 34. He says to these Jewish Christians, remember those earlier days after you received the light. He says, I want you to remember when you first became a Christian, when you received the light of the gospel. He says, you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, you were, you were people of conviction. You were unequivocal in your conviction towards the Lord. He says, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult, persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You even sympathized with those in prison. And look at this. Joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. And so he says here in verse 35, so do not throw away your confidence. He says, don't stop running. 
Don't go back to the old forms of Judaism. Don't go back to the shadow. The reality is here. He says, don't throw away your confidence. It'll be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. Why? So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And so the writer of Hebrews, whoever it was, was encouraging these Jewish Christians to keep running the race and to not give up. Now, what he's going to do in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, is he's going to give us seven principles of how you and I can run the race with endurance, how we can start well, and how we can finish well. A lot of Christians start well. When the gun is fired, they take off in the blocks, and there's a hunger for God, there's a thirst for God, they can't get enough of the Word. But I've seen this over and over again, and I've had to fight it in my own life. What happens is we can grow cold in our walk with God. We can develop a sense of apathy, a sense of indifference, a sense of lukewarmness. And we're really Sunday Christians only. We're just showing up, but there's no desire to serve God. There's no hunger for God. There's no hunger for the Word. And I know we all go through the ebbs and flows of life. That's just normal. But how can you and I finish well? I want to be able to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ like the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4 and say, I finished the race that God gave me. Listen, we all have a lane to run in. God's given all of us an assignment, and we want to run and fulfill that assignment to the best of our God-given empowered ability. And so he gives us several principles here. Let me share them with you, jot them down. Number one, if you want to run the race well and finish well, you must remember believers who have run the race before you. Remember believers who have run the race prior to you. Verse 1, he says, therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? On the basis of what I just said in chapter 11, he mentions all those people in the hall of fame of faith. He mentions all those people that ran the race, Abraham, Moses, David, all those individuals who ran the race. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the cloud of witnesses here are referring to the people in chapter 11. Now, there are some commentators who want to say that the cloud of witnesses are the Christians who have gone before us, who are in heaven right now, and there's sort of a divine grandstand up in heaven, and all the Christians who are now in glory and in heaven, they're up there as divine cheerleaders, and they're cheering us on as we're running the race. Well, that's a nice thought. I remember when I was in high school, I played football from eighth grade all the way to my senior year, and I remember one particular game, I came out for a play or was in between series, and I'm sitting there, and I'll never forget the cheerleaders. You know, they were doing their thing, and they came up with this jingle that I've never heard before. In fact, it's stuck in my head. Here's how the jingle went. We ain't bad, and we ain't cocky, but we'll ride on you like a Kawasaki. Boom, boom. A zoom, zoom. A zoom, zoom. They kept doing that, and I kept hearing it over again, and I'm looking back going, what is this song? Well, listen, they were there to encourage us to finish the game and finish it well. Well, that's the idea that some people have. These people are up in heaven in the grandstands, and they're up there cheering us on. Well, again, it's a nice thought, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here with the cloud of witnesses. The cloud of witnesses are the people mentioned, as I said, in chapter 11. They are the ones who had run the race, and they finished the race. And so what he's saying is, I want you to draw inspiration off those people in chapter 11. They ran the race. And you know, you and I need to draw inspiration from believers from the past who have run the race and they finished their course and they finished well. You know, their race is done. And you know, often people historically inspire us. One guy that I really love is John Wesley. 
John Wesley started the Methodist movement, but John Wesley was a workhorse. And you know, when you read the biographies of men and women from the past, or maybe you have a loved one, a relative that ran the race well, you know what that does? It inspires you to keep running because we have an obligation. They have passed the baton to us, and you know what? We're going to pass it to the next generation, and there's a sense of obligation. You know, I need to run the race well because previous generations paid a high price for the freedoms that I enjoy, and even the Christian life that I live, I want to continue what they started. There was a man by the name of Peter Cameron Scott. Peter Cameron Scott was born in 1867 in Glasgow, Scotland, and he felt a call by God to go to Africa. In fact, there was an inland mission that he's going to eventually start, but he wanted to go there, and so he decided to go. Well, while he was there, he got sick, and he got discouraged, so he had to come back to England, and he decided to recuperate, but he still felt the vision in his heart to go to Africa and reach the people there. And so this time, he took his brother with him. And while they were there, unfortunately, his brother died, and he had to bury his brother in foreign soil. Well, he was very, very discouraged, but he decided he was going to stay and preach the gospel, but he got sick again. So he had to return to England. And while he was in England, he was very, very discouraged. And he thought, Lord, it doesn't seem like the door's opening for me. And he was very despondent. So one day he went to Westminster Abbey, that particular cathedral. And while he was there, he saw the tombstone of David Livingston. David Livingston was a well-known doctor and missionary who went to Africa and he uh, he blazed a trail there, and when he saw his tombstone, he read on it, John chapter 10, I have other sheep that are not of this pen, and I want to bring them in. And he was so invigorated by what David Livingston had done, it inspired him, and he went back, and he started African Inland Mission. And to this day, uh, it still is going, and it uh, blazed a trail in Africa. And so he was inspired by that, and that's what often happens with you and I. When we get discouraged in the Christian life, we need to remember there are other people that have had struggles just like you and I, and, and I'm reminded of the fact that they're now in heaven. They're now enjoying all the glories of heaven. They have run their race. And so the first principle is to remember those who have run the race prior to you. There's a second principle that the writer of Hebrews says we must do if we're going to run well, and that is we must deal with hindrances that slow us down in the race, encumbrances. Notice, if you will, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the people of chapter 11, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. Now, what's an encumbrance? An encumbrance is not a sin. An encumbrance is something that slows us down in the race. It's excess baggage. It's excess weight. It's stuff that basically divides our mind. It keeps us from focusing in on the Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, when I played football, one of the other auxiliary sports that I played was track and field. And the reason why is because I wanted to stay in shape for the football season. And so every year when I would run track, you'll notice up on the screen the shoes here, they would mandate that you would buy these types of shoes. They have spikes on the bottom. They're very, very light. They have good traction. And the goal was you wanted to shed as much as possible. That's why they wear those silk pants. They wear tank tops because you want to have the advantage. And so I had to get these types of shoes. Now imagine, next slide, if I was to run the race in combat boots. Now there's nothing wrong with running a race in combat boots, but what's the problem? 
The problem is combat boots are an encumbrance. They'll slow you down in the race. And you know, a lot of Christians, they may not be living in sin, but what they're doing is they're wearing spiritual combat boots. What happens is they have encumbrances in their life that slow them down. You've been in traffic before on I-95 or in some particular road, and you're thinking to yourself, why is it moving so slow? It's like a snail's pace, only to find out that there's somebody on the side of the road. You ever seen that before? Their car is there, and you say to yourself, we slowed down for this, and you see, that's what an encumbrance is. It's something that slows us down in the Christian life. It divides our mind. And you know, I have found in ministry, John would attest to this too, one of the biggest encumbrances for a lot of people is sometimes negative relationships. It pulls us away from God. I had a guy that I led to Christ was discipling him, and he was dating a girl, and she kept pulling him down and pulling him down. Finally, it derailed him spiritually. For some of you, the encumbrance may be social media. It may be your television. It may be computer. Again, none of those things are wrong in and of themselves, but what happens is somebody said to me after the first service, you know, I spent four hours the other day just watching TV when I could have been in the Word of God. And again, there's nothing wrong with watching television or looking at the computer unless you're doing stuff that's out of bounds, but sometimes there are encumbrances in life that slow us down, relationships. And you know, the goal is, he says, get rid of the encumbrances. So ask yourself this question this morning. What is it that's slowing you down in the Christian race? What encumbrance is slowing you down? You say, well, it's my spouse, so should I get rid of them? No, the Bible doesn't say to do that. But I'm talking here about legitimate encumbrances that pull you away. Well, there's a third principle, if you and I are going to run the race and run it well, and that is we must repent of sin that will keep us from the race. You see, encumbrances slow us down in the race where if we're not careful, allowing ourselves to fall into a lifestyle of sin, that will actually keep us from the race because it will entrap us. Notice what he says in verse 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, and here it is, the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, in the Greek, This is in the definite article. It's not sin in general. It's the sin. Now, we don't know what the sin was here in the Jewish community. It probably was the sin of unbelief. It probably was the sin of going back to Judaism and not taking a stand for Christ. But it really doesn't matter. The point that he's making here is if we're not vigilant, we can fall into a lifestyle of sin. Now, let me just say this at the outset, and John has said this many, many times, we're all going to battle sin and we're all going to sin here. There is no one who's perfect. We're all going to battle sin and we're all going to have those besetting sins that we just struggle with. But you know what? It's our response to sin. That's the issue. And if we're not careful, we can justify sin, we can tolerate it in our life, we can rationalize it, And what happens is sin gets a little bit of a toehold in our life, and that toehold leads to a foothold, and that foothold leads to a fortress, and we can end up becoming bound by sin, and it derails us. I know for me, I was walking with God in high school, but you know what happened? I stopped being in the Word. I stopped being in prayer. I was hanging out with my partying buddies, and for two years, I stopped running. When I went to Samford University, I was back into the partying, and I knew in my heart it was wrong. But you see, that was the sin that derailed me. And so for some of you, it may be, for example, uh, some relationship again. 
Now, my personal conviction is in the American church, yeah, you have your immorality, you have all these things, but one thing that we often don't talk about in the American church that often is the sin that keeps people from running is apathy, indifference, lukewarmness. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus said, you are neither hot nor cold, so I'll spit you out of my mouth. In other words, what that says is it sickens Jesus. And what you have in the American church is a lukewarm church. That's the sin that's entangling the American church. That's the sin that's binding us. I was reading this week about a lady. She was in a yacht. She was with all these people, and uh, she had her bathing suit on, and she was in an area. The article said it was infested with crocodiles, but there were also nursing sharks around there, and so she decided to get down low, and she was feeding the nursing sharks. Now, nursing sharks are known to be very docile, but as she was feeding one, one decided to latch onto her finger. It grabbed her, and you could see this is a real picture. It pulled her in. And they had to jump in the water to get her out real quick because there were crocodiles everywhere. And I thought that's a picture of what happens when we justify sin in our life. If we don't deal with it through confession and repentance and accountability, what happens is it gets a finger hold and then it begins to build. And before long, we're entrapped. To use another illustration I saw from nature, this bear, you'll notice the picture up on the screen. There was this bear that somehow got entrapped in this car. Obviously, there was food in there. And this bear got stuck in the car and couldn't get out. And look what it did to the inside of the car. It tore up that car. Well, evidently, the homeowners thought it was a burglar. So they called the police. The police came out. Next slide. The policeman takes his stick. And next slide, he breaks the window and lets the bear out. And I thought that's a picture of what happens with us. We get incarcerated in sin. We get bound by it. And you know what it does? It derails us from running the race with endurance. Again, we're going to battle sin. We're all going to have those besetting sins. It's not a justification. But here's the issue. It's my response. Am I indifferent to sin? Do I have an attitude? It doesn't matter. You see, that's when you need to be concerned. So if you and I are going to run the race well, not only must we deal with encumbrances, spiritual combat boots, but we must deal with sin in our life that will often keep us from running the race. Well, there's a fourth principle that you and I must follow if we're going to run the race well, and that is we must persevere in the race. We can't quit. It's easy to quit when you're running a marathon. And you got to understand the Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Notice what he says in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And here it is. Let us run with endurance, perseverance, not quitting, being tenacious, having the grip of a bulldog. He says the race that is set before us. Now listen, whenever you tell somebody to run with endurance, you know what this implies? This implies commitment. This implies focus. This implies discipline. It also implies that you're going to get resistance in the Christian life. In order to run with endurance, you and I deal with the enemy of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so if you're living the Christian life, it's normal to face resistance. In fact, if you're not facing resistance, you're not living the Christian life. I heard a well-known preacher one time on TV. He said, the Christian life is easy. My first thought was, what are you smoking, dude? The Christian life is going to have resistance there. That's normal. Now, I'm not saying every day is a battle and every day is a struggle. For some people, it may be. But listen, you and I got to make sure that we run with endurance. That means we're going to get knocked down. We got to get back up. 
Sometimes we do get derailed. Sometimes we get off into someone else's lane. Sometimes we walk off the track and we say, I'm done with the Christian life. You know, you know those people at the church, they disappointed me. You know, the pastor hurt me. People come up with 101 excuses, and you know what? You got to get back up. You got to forgive. And you got to be willing to say, Lord, I am not going to quit, but I'm going to run this race with endurance. There's a woman by the name of Florence Chadwick. Maybe you've heard of her back in the 1950s. She decided that she wanted to swim from the coast of California all the way to Catalina Island. I think it was like a 26-mile swim. And so she got in the water, and she started to swim, and about 13 to 15 hours into it, she was getting very fatigued and very exhausted. And so other boats were around her. They were trying to encourage her. Her mother was in one of the boats, and a fog began to descend upon where she was swimming. Well, finally, after 15 or 16 hours, she asked to be removed from the water. And when she was, they told her that she was one mile from the shoreline. She missed it. And it was because of the fog. And here is what she said. She said, I couldn't see the end. She said, if I could have seen the finish line, she said, I would have been reinvigorated. You see, you and I need to persevere. The finish line is heaven. The finish line is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The finish line is drinking grape juice in heaven with Jesus Christ and enjoying all the glories of heaven. See, that's the finish line. And that's what motivates us to persevere and not quit. Well, there's another principle that the writer of Hebrews gives here. It's a great one if you and I are going to run the race well and finish well. And that is number five, we must focus on Christ who finished the race. He's the great example. Notice what he says in verses two and three. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is a fixed focus. This is something we have to do on a regular basis. And listen, if we're not in the Word, we're not in prayer, we're not in fellowship, there's no way we'll fix our eyes on Jesus. He says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. That simply means that Jesus is the originator of the faith of Christianity, and He's the chief example of the faith. And notice what it says, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says to these Hebrew Christians and to you and I, for consider, verse 3, him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. I want you to think about what Jesus went through, how the sinners persecuted him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You, verse 4, have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And so he introduces to us a fifth principle here, and that is we got to fix our focus on Jesus because that helps us to run the race. Why? He's the consummate example. The story is told about Cyrus, who's the founder of the Persian Empire. Uh, the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and after the Persians came the Greeks. Well, Cyrus was the founder, and the story is told that he captured this particular prince and his family. And Cyrus said to this prince, he said, what would you give me if I let you go? And the prince said, I would give you up to half of my wealth if you free me. Cyrus said to him, well, what would you give me if I freed your children? He said, I would give you all of my wealth. And then Cyrus said, what would you give me if I freed your wife? He said, sir, he said, I would give you myself as a slave if you would free my wife. Well, he was so moved with compassion, he let them all go. And the story says that while they were that day talking, 
The husband said to his wife, did you notice how good looking Cyrus was? And the wife said to her husband, I didn't even notice how good he looked because my focus was on you because you were the one who was willing to die for me. And you see, that's what Jesus says here is that we're to keep our focus on Jesus Christ when we're running the race. Now, there's two things that the writer of Hebrews mentions. Number one, he mentions Jesus's suffering. He says to these Christians, you haven't been to the point of shedding your blood. He's talking about the physicality of the crucifixion. We know that Jesus sweat drops of blood, but we also know he died a brutal, ignoble death on the cross. And you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, when it came out 20 plus years ago. Now, people ask, why did Mel Gibson put so much emphasis on the passion? Well, that's his Catholic background. But I cringed when I was sitting there watching the movie. The physicality, the brutality of that, none of us could endure. But it was more than just the physicality. The writer of Hebrews doesn't say this, but we know this from the Gospels that Jesus suffered separation from the Father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, that's what Jesus was struggling with. Yes, he was human. He didn't want to go through the physical pain, but ultimately Jesus had never experienced separation from the Father. And he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. But he said, not my will, your will be done. And on that cross, he experienced hell when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's hell. And you see, he went through all that torment. So he's saying, look, I want you to remember what Jesus went through. And so as you're running the race, as you're suffering, Remember what he went through. And that's why we celebrate communion here once a month at Calvary Chapel, because part of celebrating communion reminds us of the passion of Jesus. That's why it's so critical. We're in the word, we're in prayer. See, this reminds us, it helps us to keep our focus on Jesus. But I think there's another thing he says to focus on. Not only Jesus is suffering, but he says, focus on his perspective. What do you mean by his perspective? Well, I love this. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross knowing he was going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. You see, Jesus had an internal perspective. He realized the dividends of his suffering. What were the dividends? He knew he would be exalted to the right hand of God. He also knew the souls of men were in the balance. And so because of the joy set before him, Jesus was willing to endure the suffering now. And there's a principle for you and I. You see, our perspective is we sacrifice for God now. We pay the price now. We serve the Lord now. Why? Because our perspective is an eternal perspective. Do you know the Bible says that we're going to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places? We're going to be seated at the right hand of God with him. Did you know that Jesus is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master? You see, what motivates us is that eternal perspective. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we don't focus what is seen. He says what is seen is temporal. He says what is unseen is eternal. And you see, that needs to be our perspective. There is, you know, you hear people say sometimes that person has blinders, you know. Uh, they're in love with somebody and uh, the love is blind. Uh, of course, they don't follow up by saying marriage is an eye-opener. But anyway, uh, they say love is blind. Well, we use that term blinders, we use it in a negative way, but it's actually used in a positive way when it comes to Belgium horses. Now, if you look at the screen up here, notice the horse. They put these particular eye patches on these horses because Belgium horses pull hay behind them. You say, well, is it cruel to blind them as they're doing their job? No, because horses, particularly these horses, their eyes are on the sides and they don't have good peripheral vision. And the slightest provocation or noise 
can keep them from doing what they need to do, and they don't have good vision looking forward. So what they do, in order to keep them focused on the task at hand, they put these blinders on them. And I thought to myself, you know what? We all need blinders, don't we? Because many times we get distracted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have so many distractions in our culture, and we need those spiritual blinders to keep us having an eternal perspective. And so the writer of Hebrews here says, fix your focus on Jesus Christ, particularly His suffering and particularly His perspective. Well, as we wind down, there's a sixth principle if you and I are going to finish well, and that is we must view difficulty as God's loving discipline in the race. We're all going to have hurdles in the race. We're all going to have difficulty. And listen, my perspective on the challenges and the difficulties of life will determine if I finish the race and run the race or whether or not I walk off the track. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says to these Jewish Christians, and you have forgotten. Isn't that always the case? We need to be reminded. He says, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. What is the exhortation here he's referring to? Well, he's going to quote Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, and here's what that proverb says. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son or daughter whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline him? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if you're never never disciplined, you're not a child of God. Furthermore, verse 9, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. We may not at the time, but now we do. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He, that is God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. There's a purpose in discipline. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, and we get an amen to that, but sorrowful, yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And what he's saying here is, look, I want you to focus in on the fact you are being persecuted as Jewish Christians. You've lost your property. Don't go back to Judaism. You need to see this as God training you, God purifying you, God making you holy. Listen, when God disciplines us or we go through trials in life, it's not always because of sin issues. Sometimes it is. Sometimes even in sin, God disciplines us. Why? That's even love because He wants to bring us back on the right course. But sometimes the trials of life are not over disobedient issues like King David. He suffered discipline because of his sin. Job, on the other hand, suffered because it was a wager in heaven. He didn't know that. Sometimes when we go through trials in life, it's God training us, it's God making us holy, it's God keeping us on track. Now, I understand this passage because my mom ruled the home with an iron fist. My mom was gracious, but my mom's Middle Eastern. She speaks fluent Arabic. Of course, when they scream at you, that's what they talk in. And I remember as a kid, I was the middle child. I have an older sister, younger brother. I was the challenging one. All of you middle children can identify with that probably. My mom said, Mike, I wore a belt around my neck. And she says, I kept it for you. 
And the reason why is I got into trouble all the time. I'd break windows, people knock on our door, Miss Nimmer, your son Michael broke another window. One particular day, I was with a friend, and I was in Miami, and we saw a car that was parked on the side of the road. It was a residential area, and we had a book of matches, and the window was down. And I said, wouldn't it be cool to flick a match in the back seat? So I took the little match and flicked it right in the back, and then I ran. Well, I'm in my backyard, not far from the site, and all of a sudden, I hear all these fire trucks, and I look up, and I see a billow of black smoke. My mom comes home. She says, Michael, in her loud Lebanese voice, Michael, did you see that car? There's a car on fire over there. And I look like a deer in the headlights. And she looked at me and she goes, did you do that? (laughs) And I had a look of horror on my face. Well, my mom had these leather strips. Now, my mom wasn't abusive, but my mom tore me up. And you know what? My mom shaped my will. My mom disciplined me. My mom kept me on the straight and the narrow. And you know what? I can understand here. It wasn't pleasant at the time. I was always getting in trouble. But if it wasn't for the Lord and my mom's discipline, who knows where I would be? And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, look, sometimes it's hard to go through the difficulties of life, the struggles of life. And sometimes we go through more than then we say, Lord, it doesn't seem fair. Why do some Christians suffer more than others? I don't know. And I'm not saying God causes all suffering. Life happens. But you know what? Our perspective is critical when we go through the difficulties of life. They'll either make us bitter or they will make us better. And if we don't interpret difficulty through the grid of God training me, God making me holy, God sifting me, sanding me, pruning me, and taking the dross away from my life, if we don't have that perspective, you know what happened? We get bitter with God. God, I don't deserve this. I'm trying to serve you. I go to church every week. I tithe. I sacrifice this. I sacrifice that. And Lord, is this what you do to me? And there are Christians that have that mentality. And I'm not saying it's wrong to struggle with God. We've all wrestled with God. Why? I was just reading yesterday about a Filipino family in Delaware. Four daughters, all teenage years. Some F-150 hit their car, killed all the daughters and the husband, and only the mothers left. And I thought, man, what kind of tragedy is that? Imagine going through a Job-like experience like that. I don't understand all of life, but God is sovereign in the midst of it. And so we must see discipline as God's loving hand in our life. He's training us, and sometimes it's to get us back on the track, especially when we have veered from God. Well, there's one final principle this morning, if you and I are going to run the race and run it well, and that is we must help strengthen others in the race. When you and I run the race, there are other brothers and sisters that are struggling. Maybe they've dropped out of the race. Maybe they're weary, they're wounded. And you know what? They need a brother or sister to come alongside them and encourage them not to quit. They need an exhortation. Sometimes they need a listening ear. Sometimes they need love. Notice what he says in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak. Now, typically when you run a race, your hands kind of go down. And so using the race metaphor here, he's saying, strengthen your hands that are weak. In other words, don't droop down. And your knees that are feeble. What happens when you're running a race and you're exhausted like that lady at the beginning? She fell down. He says, I want you to strengthen your hands and your feet. And he says, make straight paths for your feet. In other words, stay in your lane. Keep running. Why? Here's the reason. So that the limb 
which is lame. Who's that? Somebody else who's struggling may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. In other words, he's saying, and probably the leaders of the church, you need to be strong. Why? Because you're an influence on other people. And you know what? You and I need to run the race with endurance. It doesn't mean we're not going to struggle. Listen, even as leaders, we have struggles. I have struggles. John has them. Heidi has them. We're not perfect either. And sometimes we need your encouragement because we can grow weary in the battle. But I'll tell you what, we need to help others who are struggling. And sometimes that means picking up the phone saying, hey, brother, sister, I haven't seen you in a while. Yesterday, I called a friend of mine, and I've been calling him once a month, and I said, hey, I said, uh, have you dropped out of church? He had two wives leave him in the matter of 10 years. Two wives divorced him. He's beat up, discouraged, and, he's, and I think he's kind of hurt. And I said, look, have you given up on God's people? I didn't condemn him. I just wanted to encourage him. I said, look, man, I'm praying for you, brother. And sometimes we need to do that. We need to encourage other people. I'll end with this. How many have seen the movie Rudy? Probably my top three movies that I've seen. I love that movie because it's got a football background based on a true story. But Rudy was very short. Uh, He wasn't a very good athlete, but he always had a dream to play for Notre Dame. And he was able to get in finally by going to Holy Cross. He did his studies there and they accepted him at Notre Dame. And Everyone loved him on the team because he had such a heart. He worked very, very hard, but he didn't have athletic ability. But because of his impact, the coach that was coaching at that time said, you know what, Rudy, I know you want to prove a point to your family. He says, I'm going to let you suit up for one game. Well, that coach eventually left, and Rudy never got to see his dream through that coach. A new coach comes in, didn't have regard for what the old coach had promised him, And so he's hoping, hoping, hoping he's going to make the squad that's going to travel. He doesn't get on the list, and finally Rudy quits. He was so disgusted, he quit. And I remember during the movie, there was a guy that wasn't a starter, and he confronted Rudy, and he said to him, he said, why are you quitting? He says, it's that easy, huh? You're going to quit? And he says, I'm tired of this, Rudy said. He says, I've worked my tail off, and he says, I'm not even going to get an opportunity. And the guy looked at him and he said, Rudy, he said, you're the reason why I have stayed on this team. You're the reason why. See, Rudy had an impact on that guy because when that guy got discouraged and he wanted to quit, he looked at the example of Rudy and Rudy motivated him. And you know, when you and I stay focused on God, when we walk with God, you know what it does? It inspires other people. There are other brothers and sisters that are struggling. And you know what? The church needs to rise up and help them. It's not just my job and John's job. The body of Christ needs to gather together. And when people stray from God, we need to call people. People that are in the hospital, we need to encourage them because we get tunnel vision. So let me ask you a question. How are you running this morning? Are you wounded? Are you weary? Are you wayward? God wants you to run with a maximum effort. And maybe you're struggling this morning. I want you to know that we're here for you. We want to help you. We want to encourage you. But if you're going to run the race with endurance, there's seven principles you got to follow based on Hebrews chapter 12. Number one, remember believers who have run the race before you. Deal with hindrances that slow you down in the race. What are those hindrances? Thirdly, repent of sin that's keeping you from running the race. Number four, persevere in the race. Don't quit. Get back up. Focus on Christ who finished the race. View difficulty as God's loving discipline in the race. And finally, help strengthen others in the race. Because you know what? Second Timothy 4, Paul said at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. And he says, I have finished the what? The race. Listen, when your race is going to end, when my race is going to end, I don't know. 
I don't know, it reminded me of a pastor in uh, Orlando, true story, Presbyterian pastor. He got up and he was waxing eloquent. He was preaching and he said, you know what? He said, until my life is finished on this earth, he said, I'm invincible. And God, until he's ready to take me home, he said, I'm invincible. Right then he dropped dead of a heart attack. The whole congregation rushed to the front. God took him home just like that. I don't know when the race is done for you and me, but we want to run it with endurance. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for reminding us. Lord, we need words of encouragement. We all struggle. Lord, sometimes we grow weary, we get wounded in the battle, and sometimes it's just waywardness. The appeal of the world is too strong. And if you're sitting here this morning, maybe, maybe you're not running like you should. Maybe you're coasting. Maybe you've allowed apathy, indifference, lukewarmness to set in. I want to encourage you this morning just to recommit yourself to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I don't want to be a person who, who's not running with endurance. I want to finish well. Maybe you've allowed encumbrances into your life, a relationship, or whatever it is. It's pulled you away from having that time with God. It's pulled you away from running. Just take a minute now to cry out to God and to repent if you need to repent. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning as your personal Lord and Savior, that's how you enter the race. You're not even in the race if you don't know Christ. And the Bible says that if you repent of your sin and you trust in the death and resurrection of Christ as the only means of your salvation, God will forgive you and give you the gift of eternal life. And so this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ, I want to encourage you to do so this morning. Say, Jesus, save me. I trust in you alone. If you need to talk to somebody on the pastoral staff, let us know. Write us a note. We want to be there to encourage you. Father, as we leave now, as we go out of this sanctuary, Father, we go into a lost and dying world that needs hope. And we know Jesus is the hope of the world. And I pray that we would have those blinders on. We would keep our focus on the gospel. Help us, Lord, not to get distracted. In Jesus' name.